Coming up, here comes Santa spreading Christmas cheer. Oh no, wait, it's Boris Johnson organising a seasonal super spreader event. We unpick a week of mixed news. You can see your gran at Christmas, but you might kill her in the process. Meanwhile, the economy's screwed and the cabinet's full of bullies. The seasonal fun starts here. Hello, Paul Osborne here. Thank you for downloading this latest podcast. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Jack Frost nipping at your nose because the window's been open all day. Yuletide carols being sung by a socially distanced choir. And folks dressed up in paramedic uniforms, taking granny off to hospital with coronavirus. Yes, it's the magic of Christmas 2020. As England prepares to emerge from a lockdown that never really felt like a lockdown, and as Boris Johnson emerges from two weeks of self-isolation, imposed because no one in Downing Street appears to wear a face mask, we increasingly seem to pin all our hopes for this most awful of years on Christmas. So here comes Santa Boris, and what's this he's pulling out of his suspiciously crumpled festive sack? Why, it's a five-day holiday from coronavirus. He sat down with the pesky blighter and persuaded it to lay off for a few days. We can all meet up, stuff ourselves with Quality Street, get off our faces on Baileys by 11am with no risk of any kind of terrible third wave of death. Not really. He's just decided that it's more important to avoid the political penalty of supposedly cancelling Christmas than it is to protect people from the risk of dying in a hospital intensive care unit in January. A small price to pay for five days of fun. Back in April, the Queen talked about her wartime generation, the sacrifices they had had to make, and wondered if this pandemic would demonstrate our ability to make sacrifices for the greater good. That wartime generation had six pretty awful Christmases. We can't bear the thought of one without a gigantic piss-up, even if the price is another surge in infections, hospitalizations, and deaths. Meanwhile, as millions declare a start to the Christmas season in November, putting up their trees and cranking up the Mariah Carey and the Slade, the government points out just how deep an economic hole we are now in. The economy's collapsed and it's only going to get worse. But while friends of cabinet ministers can line up for massive PPE contracts or high-paying jobs running COVID tests, the very people who've run the biggest risk of infection, the people who've kept our schools open, our public infrastructure, are first in line for the pain. A pay freeze on top of all the other misery of this miserable year. Well, we'll get to that in a moment, but let's start with those plans for Christmas as we bring in Robert Meakin. Uh, so, Robert, 23rd to the 27th of December, all bets are off. Up to three households. Households, by the way, of any size, uh, as long as they count as a household, can form a Christmas bubble. It is, according to Boris Johnson, a special time-limited dispensation. According, however, to one member of SAGE, it is throwing fuel on the COVID fire and likely to lead to a third wave of infections and hospitals being overrun. Merry Christmas! I know, and uh, my initial feeling and frustration was, as someone who's you know, lived under the regulations like most people for all this time, was it just seemed obviously pretty nonsensical, to put it politely. Then, you know, I'm also reminded that whether we like it or not, 
I think there is a, a significant percentage of this country that was going to ignore whatever other rules were put in place. I, I spoke to someone a good few weeks back who perfectly reasonable, law abiding individual. And she just said, you know what? No chance. When it comes to Christmas, I'm going home. My dad's going to pick me up. He's going to drive me the 200 miles. I'm going back. I'm going to be the rest of the family. And I think she spoke for a large percentage of people. And I do think the government is stuck between a rock and a hard place because if they tried to put down stricter rules, we'd be having all these headlines saying, look, the police are stopping people going to see mummy and daddy at Christmas time. But they've now got this this bizarre sort of fudge where they're giving these people these grace. And I really do think it's because they, they really feared there could be chaos otherwise and a lot of people would be trying to break the rule anyway. I, I get it. I mean, the government... I think knows full well, as to the devolved administrations who've all signed up to this, that this is a risky move that will almost certainly lead to more infections and more deaths. The people who get infected at Christmas, their life will be in danger in the middle of January. That is every single year, the period in each year when deaths are at their highest anyway. So they will be adding further strain on the NHS. They know all this, but as you say, what was the alternative? It was mass civil disobedience. It was mass law-breaking. It was, and this is probably not the first time we're going to say this today, a politically motivated decision, regardless of whether or not it was the right decision. It highlights rather Boris's instincts as a politician. He's been this gloomy figure pretty much for the whole year for obvious reasons and he, he really wants to avoid the role of, of the Christmas Grinch doesn't he he would always by his instincts as a politician want to pull something out of the bag and, and be that the cheery Santa Claus just for these few days and and this is what that is you know, even though we've yeah most people have, have however unhappily agreed to abide by the the rules and regulations of, of recent months when it comes to Christmases and people wanting to get together in their kitchens and drink a you know a load of booze together that 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 that's one thing a lot of people aren't prepared to give up you know and uh, and that's what this is really about your eye may think well that's as i say is still pretty illogical because covid doesn't know it's christmas but that's how a lot of people feel people are going to break the rules anyway and i think yes the prime minister's playing a populist move but b i think he's placed in an impossible position to be fair there are echoes too of what happened when the first lockdown was eased back in sort of may june when we had that stay alert fiasco which sort of shifted the responsibility away from the government saying do this don't do that on to you and sort of said well you have to decide what you think is an appropriate level of risk. So the, the rules are being loosened over Christmas, but at the same time, people are being told you should use your own judgment about whether or not you want to visit your elderly relatives this Christmas. You give them what you say, the politically motivated, you want to be Santa, yes, you can go and see everyone for Christmas. And then you say, though, of course, you probably shouldn't. It does, to me, seem a, a fairly a precarious way to go about things because... Um, it, it just seems, as you say, there's a huge amount of risks and we're going to be fairly predictably, very unfortunately, talking about the, the, the Christmas Covid spike in January now. But it, it seems the government is ready to take that hit. Well, before we get to Christmas, we've got three more weeks of December to get through under toughened restrictions, a three-tier system. That's coming back once the lockdown ends. Uh, the, the Christmas announcement, in a way, was sort of the sugar before the horrible medicine of the three tiers. I mean, government insiders saying, look, no one's going to be happy about these tiers. Loads more people either in tier two with, with a ban on indoor mixing or tier three, which is not a million miles away from the lockdown we've just been 
seen through and they'll be in that position right up until the relaxation of those rules two days before Christmas. So there's a there's a lot more misery to get through first. There is. It, it just does seem strange that we're going through all that then to, to have something quite the opposite, uh, just, just quite some extreme. We just seem to be having a sort of shorter, more intense spike as a result of this. So it doesn't really make much common sense. I mean, tighter restrictions could actually lead to an even bigger blowout at Christmas. Yeah, indeed. Because people have been, in some parts of the country, they've been under, you know, pretty tight restrictions for months now. And you're just going to take the shackles off for five days and say, oh, do what you like for a few days. Then and some of these rules don't, don't make sense. We're going to have vast parts of the country being told no indoor household mixing but 2,000 people at football matches. It's it, just weird. Yeah, I'm afraid, uh, I, mean, I mean, the football thing is, is an odd one. Again, just has, has this, this, this strange little parallel universe alongside, alongside the rest of the world, really, when it comes to Britain, that this obsession with the football must go on, the football must happen, come what may, football fans must be in stadiums. And you've got all sorts of other issues going on where people can't go into pubs and all the rest of it. Somehow the, the football occupies a different territory in terms of the the social rules we're supposed to abide by. I speak of someone who's not anti-football, but I've still found it rather extraordinary and bizarre at times. Well, on top of all that, we also had this report from the National Audit Office that revealed the full extent of the government's failures over the provision of PPE at the height of the emergency. The stocks had dwindled so much pre-pandemic that the government then had to go on this spending spree. But in fact, they overbought. They bought five years' worth of PPE. They spent an extra £10 billion because the prices had soared so much. Some of that PPE, as we know, turned out to be rubbish and couldn't be used. And of course, we also know that an awful lot of contracts seem to miraculously find their way to people who had political links to the Conservative Party. That was a a particularly sort of grim uh, revelation obviously in recent days you always you get you get these you get these ghouls in the shadows who are profiting enormously from this this current crisis we're in and of course as you as you look at all the sacrifices people are making uh, the, 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 the current state of the economy and you know you hear someone is trousering millions upon millions of pounds amid all this uh, it, it, it's a it, it's very very hard to stomach Now, the Christmas announcement was, of course, designed to cheer people up. And then a couple of days later, the Chancellor set out the true misery of our economic catastrophe. He started with a real audience plea. So Rishi Sunak saying our economic emergency has only just begun. And then he set out the stats. The economy shrinking by more than 11% this year. That is the biggest fall in three centuries. Unemployment set to peak at 2.6 million. A, A huge number of complicated numbers but a very big it's a scary moment to be told actually this is what the year has cost us i mean any government economic strategy went up in flames back in march you know the over 300 almost 400 billion quids worth this this has cost us so far the chance has been placed in in an impossible situation there comes a point when, you know, for all the money that's gone out to try and keep the good ship Britain afloat amid all this, there's always going to be a comeback. However sort of you know, well presented it may be, the truth is this has all been pretend money. This all has to come back. We all, we, we you and I and generations below us are going to have to pay for this in the, in the decades ahead. You could criticise the government for its message, which at times has been shambolic. And you could say, yes, that money hasn't gone to the right places at times 
in terms of economic performance. Overall, I would say the government has done a great deal of what it could have done financially, but it always is always going to be this comeback and we're now seeing it. It's interesting that one former Treasury minister said that this was a multi-generational debt which would have implications for the rest of our lives, which is a cheerful way of, of looking at it. And while, yeah, I, I get what you say about, you know, what else can the government do? It's had to borrow all this money and then at some stage it's going to have to pay it back. But there are, just as there were back in 2010 when we had to pay back all the uh, the, the money we'd borrowed in the financial crash, that there are political choices that you then have to make about where that burden goes, how it's shared out. It's interesting that in in the autumn statement, there was a big statement about this public sector pay freeze. It excludes the NHS. Uh, the lowest paid get a, a, a pay rise of £250, but everybody else gets a pay freeze. Now, what Rishi Sunak said was what has happened this year is the disparity between the public and the private sector has deepened that people in the private sector have lost their jobs or they've been furloughed or if they're self-employed maybe they've had half as much work as normal and half as much income maybe they've had no work at all whereas people in the public sector have had guaranteed jobs and guaranteed income and it's interesting to see how the public react to that because on the one hand yeah if you're sitting at home on furlough or you're unemployed or you haven't worked for six months, it's quite likely that you might say, well, you know, why should someone working in the civil service get an automatic pay rise? But that pay freeze does also cover some of the people who, while we've been sitting safe in our homes, having stuff delivered to the door, have been out there most at risk of contracting this virus, keeping services going, without which the country would grind to a halt. The people we were on our doorsteps applauding back in April are among the people who've just been told, no money for you. Yeah, and I understand that, that that's, a, that's a really a grim scenario for such people who've, who've given so much to keep this country going in these last months. But I actually think it's... Uh, Overall, and I know you, when you identify that example, that that's that is that's hard to accept. But overall, I, I I think it has to be considered the right call by the Chancellor. After all the money that's been shipped out in all manner of directions presently, I think it would be pretty strange to, to start dishing up further pay rises in whatever area. As however hard that, however unfair that may seem to certain sectors and to people, obviously who've put so much on the line recently, this this country shouldn't be in a position at the moment to be giving out pay rises, whether it's MPs on the the one side or even dare I say even people working in the NHS. This is a time where this country has been absolutely hammered economically, and we've got to somehow get back on our feet. And I just just I just think it's a question of reality. Uh, of course, uh, the other uh, area that's been targeted immediately is the foreign aid budget. It's It's been a badge of pride for the UK to have reached this point of committing 0.7% of national income to foreign aid. That's now falling to 0.5%, which is uh, £4 billion a year saving. Now, compared to the sort of hundreds of billions that we're talking about in terms of the overall cost uh, of of the COVID response, you know, the four billion they're saving from foreign aid is a pinprick, and it does seem to be more of a political decision than an economic decision. It seems to be about saying we've made a political choice that we're going to spend less money on aid to foreigners. We're going to spend some of that money at home. You know, Rishi Sunak used this line of saying it's very hard to justify to the public spending money on foreign aid when we don't have enough money to spend at home. It's well, but that is also about what kind of country you want to be. It's not a straightforward argument, this at all. Uh, I, myself, I, 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 it looks a relatively 
small amount when it comes to, to the nation's budget overall. I myself have the opinion that, you know, they'd be happy if it was a few more pence on your I mean, tax uh, per year. I, I do think it's, it, it's something we should do morally as a country myself. But I know where I know where they're coming from. I also know that the government would get all manner of flack from people. You'd have ministers on TV debates with pe- people sitting up saying, I've made all these sacrifices over these last couple of years. Yet why are we still giving money overseas? And the, the government knows that they, they would get that sort of criticism. Again, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. There's already been a resignation from the Foreign Office over it. You've got the Archbishop of Canterbury calling it shameful and wrong. And, and longer term, it breaches a manifesto pledge, which was to keep foreign aid at 0.7% of national income. Now, look, so did saying they were going to breach the terms of the withdrawal agreement with the EU. That breached a manifesto pledge too. But it sort of sets the precedent that you can ditch any manifesto pledge now and you can kind of get away with it by just shrugging your shoulders and going, no, COVID. And that kind of allows you to really sort of just throw the manifesto in the bin. And all this, of course, is before we add on the potential economic impact of a no-deal Brexit, which theoretically could be about five weeks away. Boris Johnson apparently told his cabinet at the weekend that he won't tolerate bullying, which is interesting as it happened immediately after he had specifically tolerated bullying. Johnson wrote a new foreword to the ministerial code when he became prime minister last year, and he said, there must be no bullying and no harassment. He left off the bit where he said, unless it's Pretty Patel. Uh, Pretty Patel, of course, the Home Secretary, uh, the Home Office and organisation that came up with the hostile environment. So you can understand where she got the idea from. Uh, ruled, Robert, by the Prime Minister's independent advisor to have bullied people. The Prime Minister then reads the report and says, no, I don't think she bullied people. So there has been a resignation. It's just been of the person who identified her as a bully. I mean, being Home Secretary is historically in recent history at least an extremely difficult job and you know often re- regarded as a poison chalice i mean i think only you'd say theresa may in recent years was the one who made a success of it in terms of lasting uh, so long it, it it certainly doesn't make good reading for pretty patel what we've heard so far i'd also say that she just hasn't looked right in the job to be brutally honest i mean i, I think at the beginning there was there was understandably is a romantic backstory to it. we have a, a lady from an ethnic minority being home secretary you think well goodness this is this is a a good story it's it, it's a modern politician with one uh, occupying one of the biggest uh, political positions in the land but she's never to be honest looked like she could cut the mustard so far i wonder whether you know that she will actually be uh, politely moved sideways and down a bit in in the coming weeks and months boris quite understandably right now doesn't want to be in this position where he's having to sack you know, senior government figures. He's got enough on his plate without having to that that sort of upheaval. But I I wouldn't be surprised a bit further down the line if we see her sort of shuffled away half politely to something else because I, it, it, the feeling is that she hasn't been able to put her stamp on that what is a very very difficult job. And then you put on top of that the fact she's been feuding and allegedly threatening staff members. It it, it doesn't look like a match made in heaven, and it doesn't look destined to last all that long. You know, the prime minister told Conservative MPs in a WhatsApp group they needed to form a protective circle around the person he described as the Pritster. It was interesting that only about a quarter of Tory MPs actually did tweet anything in support. One uh, MP, Anne-Marie Trevelyan, went on the radio to say that the staff Priti Patel was bullying 
were themselves partly to blame because they'd never actually asked her to stop. I didn't realise that if you're being bullied, you're supposed to go to the bully and say, I'm awfully sorry, but would you mind not bullying me? Other people were saying, oh, she's so kind and caring and lovely. She once came to my constituency and she stroked a kitten. Look, I've worked in the media for more than 20 years. I've encountered more than a few bullies. And I'm sure they could all find somebody who said, oh, they give money to charity. They're very nice to puppies. They visit their granny every two weeks. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're still bullies. But what's also interesting about this is what it says about Boris Johnson's decision-making process. The primary force driving his decisions is what's going to help him in this immediate moment. So, you know, Dominic Cummings, another bully, who shattered public support for the government's COVID restrictions, when he does that, Boris Johnson backs him. In doing so, invests a huge amount of political capital, only to chuck him out six months later because he's fallen out with his fiancée. And similarly, Priti Patel stays, having been labelled as a bully. You could have taken the opportunity to say, "I'm as I said in the ministerial code, no bullies in my government, you're out on your ear. He doesn't do that. He makes the decision to invest political capital in supporting her. And then two days later, people are briefing to the papers that she's going to be moved on from the Home Office because she's no good at the job. Rather illustrates again an issue I know we've touched on before and I think a lot of, of, of critics of uh, you know, conservative supporting critics of Boris's administration have as well is that the, the, the talent pool has been pretty shallow because the people who've taken up these positions in Boris's government were the ones who would, would support 100% his stance on on Brexit. There could be no sign of even the most you know polite dissent. And as a result, you've squeezed out, I think, a, a lot of the natural talent in that party. They've, they've, they've forced into the shadows, back benches or out of uh, the House of Commons altogether. And I think that's been to the detriment of the, the Conservative Party and, the, and this government um, presently. And for my money, I think Priti Patel represents that. I feel she's been overpromoted. It was almost favours for the few who'd, who'd stick close to him uh, during the, yeah, during that civil war in the Tory party. It's also worth pointing out a massive hypocrisy on the part of many people, particularly the opposition benches, demanding Priti Patel be sacked for bullying, who were openly dismissive of bullying allegations against John Burko when he was Speaker because they believed that he was on their side when it came to Brexit. They decided that was more important than standing up for people who were being bullied in their place of work. There's always these double standards. Do you think that the allegations surrounded John Burko, a lot of people who consider themselves to be very much opposed to bullying normally were oddly quiet because it didn't suit them at the time. But uh, such hypocrisy has long, has long reigned in British politics. Well, let's quickly turn to the Labour Party, led uh, at least as far as we know by Keir Starmer. Um, after Jeremy Corbyn was suspended, and then readmitted to the Labour Party. Uh, Keir Starmer refused to make him a Labour MP again. So we're in this slightly bizarre situation where the leader of the Labour Party is unable to stop somebody from being readmitted to the Labour Party, but is able to stop that member of the Labour Party from sitting in Parliament as a Labour MP. So if... If this is supposed to show, you know, a tough new attitude and a new broom, I'm not absolutely certain that it's worked. 
Now, it's the Labour Party at its glorious best, really. A very, very convoluted state of affairs. He's gone. He's not gone. He's back. Well, no, he's gone. No, he's sort of back. Labour Party bureaucracy uh, rarely disappoints. You know, more than a dozen left-wing members of the NEC walked out of a Zoom meeting. I have no idea how you walk out of a Zoom meeting. Do you all just disconnect at the same time or something? I don't know. But they all walked out of this Zoom meeting through this tantrum over what had happened with Jeremy Corbyn and some other things as well they weren't happy about. And look, that's all fine. But what a lot of people in the Labour Party don't seem to have grasped is the report, the, the Human Rights Commission's report into Labour. It's not a list of recommendations that they think they maybe ought to consider. It's a legally binding report that can be enforced in court. What they have been told to do, they are legally obliged to do. Jeremy Corbyn may be gone, but Corbynites still occupy a significant percentage of the party ranks. They're not going to go quiet. They consider Jeremy Corbyn to be a great, the great martyr for their cause. I mean, I saw someone saying just the other day, don't, don't, we don't forget our great soldiers and all the rest of it. And so Corbyn's ghost is going to hover around for a, for a long time yet and will cause um, Keir Starmer a good few headaches. It, it was, it was, I'm sure it was frustrating for him because he, he, he looked briefly like as very much a conviction politician who was striking out saying this is unacceptable. You know, Corbyn's out on his ear. And yet within, within days, he was half back again. So uh, it's, you know, it's become, it's become very messy. And I don't think it's, it, it's done, done the Labour leader any good to be honest it's uh, it, it it's but i think the party machine just isn't letting him cut through on this issue in the way he'd have wanted to before we go we talked last week about how hard it is as we come to the end of this appalling year to process good news like say the imminent departure of donald trump who at least now does seem to have accepted to some extent that the election didn't go his way uh, similarly it's hard to process this this good news we keep getting about vaccines, about the idea that there's a potential end in sight to all of this. Indeed, one newspaper article this week uh, quoted a Savile Row tailor predicting the end of what they call the lockdown look. There'll be a desire to dress up, they said, after all these restrictions. I mean, then again, a Savile Row tailor, to be honest, probably has a vested interest in saying that. I just wonder if, if this is, if in six months' time we are actually going to be drifting back to some kind of normal, what aspects of this you would miss? Because honestly... I really would miss working from home. I don't want to go back to the office. I like working from home. If I need a cup of tea, it's just over there. If I, if I you know, if I, if I fancy a biscuit, got a pack of biscuits, I don't have to share them with anybody. I don't have to make tea for anybody else. I was built for social distancing. I'm a misanthrope. I have mainly worked from home for the last 15 years, but then have travelled and gone into offices sometimes as well for meetings, blah, blah. But when I have worked in offices... Everyone increasingly have been in their own little pods anyway. Everyone's got their headphones on, all listening to their own their own particular areas of expertise, their own information that they require. I work for newspapers and magazines. They've all gone out with the, the, the guy who's putting my words on the page in one part of the country, my editor in another part of the country, the, the illustrator in another part of the country. And that's, that's the way businesses have been running all over the place. What I won't miss is Zoom calls, is the absolute misery 
of Zoom calls. At one stage, because my, my home office is not the best lit part of my home, uh, I invested in one of those light rings, like some kind of 20-year-old social media influencer. But when I switched it on, I was not only blinded, but I was reminded as I looked into the camera that I am not a 20-year-old social media influencer. I'm an angry, bitter, middle-aged man. And the light ring just made it blindingly obvious, blindingly being the operative word, to everybody looking at it. Uh, but no finer example of the proof of our technical incompetence, of course, than Boris Johnson, who managed to mute himself while giving a statement to the Commons from isolation. It's almost as if those IT lessons he had from that American woman, Jennifer Arcuri, weren't really IT lessons. I hope you're not suggesting something else is going on, Paul. I, not, not Santa Boris, the man who's sorted the coronavirus out, has had a word and who's made certain that COVID will just back off for five days. He wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do anything underhand, I'm sure. I think we'll leave it there. Don't forget there's always more on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Party Games Pod at PartyGamesPodcast.com. You can download all the past episodes and subscribe to hear the new ones. For now, though, thanks to Robert and to you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.